right, and welcome to episode 57 of Etc. Etc. I'm your host, Aug Stone. 57, like Heinz, you know. All right, some exciting stuff coming up in the world of young Southpaw, my absurdist comedian persona, for those of you who don't know. On October 4th, it'll be the three-year anniversary of the first live set. In 2018, it was my New Year's resolution to try stand-up comedy, and I had recorded the first Southpaw album at the movies, which you can find at Bandcamp, along with the other albums, singles, and 61 and counting wild stories. And after I released it, it was the end of August, and I realized that I was running out of time if I was going to do it that year. So I chose the date I was going to do it, October 4th, and then I started looking around Nashville, where I was living at the time, only to find there weren't any open mics happening that night. But there was one at the P&H Cafe in Memphis, 200 miles away. I didn't even hesitate, being such a huge Elvis fan and fans of lots of the stuff that happened at Ardent Studios and the Afghan wigs, the replacements, Big Star, etc., I decided that making such a trip would show the seriousness of my intent to have Southpaw be a thing. And it was excellent. I went up seventh and got the first real laughs of the evening. The host thanked me for getting the crowd going, and I was totally hooked. I got lots of nice compliments about the whole stream of consciousness nature of it all. And since the set went from Britney Spears to Ozzy Osbourne to Randy Rhodes and then to Cynthia Rhodes who was my first ever celebrity crush when I was six. I remembered then that the last scene of Staying Alive, where she asked John Travolta what he felt like doing now, and he replies, strut. And I strutted back to my car and made the three-hour trip home and never looked back. So to celebrate this on October 4th, I'm releasing the video for Infinite Shakespeare, a story I've grown really fond of, In fact, I'll play it at the end of the episode. It'll be coming out on the Hopscotch to Heaven EP later this fall. Pete Wiggs from St. Etienne did the music, and I was totally psyched about this. They're one of my all-time favorite bands. So look out for that on October 4th. And meanwhile, check out the other Southpaw stories over at youngsouthpaw.com and youngsouthpaw.bandcamp.com. And then there's 61 and counting on the Young Southpaw Part of an Hour podcast. To give you an idea, there's ones about what if Carl Jung was in the Ramones? What if Nietzsche was a time-traveling Wu-Tang fan? What if Guns N' Roses made an advent calendar? And why wasn't Spuds McKenzie in Wilson Phillips, you know? On today's show, I'm going to be talking to Lou Matthews and Jim Gavin. Early on in the pandemic, I discovered Jim's Lodge 49 and loved it. Binged it very quickly and was gutted when I found out it was canceled after the second season. Then this summer, I saw on Twitter that Jim had started Tiger Van Books and was releasing Lou's novel Shaky Town, and I was intrigued. So Shaky Town's out now, and I recommend picking up a copy. I really like how it built on itself, and by the fourth chapter, I found I couldn't put it down. So it was a real pleasure to have them both on the show. We recorded this last week. And I was having a really rough day, but we soon started talking about all sorts of interesting things, and my mood turned right around. So let's get to it. All right, we're here today with Lou Matthews and Jim Gavin. How are you guys doing? Good so far, but it's early. 
Oh, it is yeah. early there, huh? <laughs> Very good. Uh, thank you for having us, Hog. Well, thanks for coming. Uh, talking about the book, I guess there'll be video, but audio too. I'll hold it up for people to see. Shaky Town, which we'll get to discussing in a minute. But uh, my first question is always, tell me about when you fell in love with literature and writing. Uh, go ahead, Lou. Um, I need to think I, about my answer. I was, I was raised in libraries, and um, my mom was a Catholic school teacher with five boys to support uh, no money. So we spent all of our off time in, in libraries. And, you know, from the time I was probably about four or five years old, I was bringing home, you know, five books a week and started with ancient history and then discovered science fiction when I was about eight or nine. And I remember getting the first book I actually hooked me was Robert E. Howard, Conan the Barbarian. Okay. Um, and I actually still have a library copy of that that book because he wrote with such conviction. Um, I mean, it's still a book that I prescribe to people. I, I prescribe books the way pharmacists prescribe drugs. Nice. And if I get somebody who's spending too much time in their head, I force them to read Robert E. Howard, uh, which gets them rid of that really fast because they say this is a guy, you know, he's an accountant from Texas who kills himself when his mother died. But he wrote about this world of, you know, swords and sorcery and and and, and cruel barbarians. Um, was that it was a world he believed in so strongly and he drew maps of it. Yeah. So it's like, you know, anybody who approaches writing with that kind of conviction, and I don't care how bad the writing is, and you know, um, and sometimes it was, but but it's just <laughs> like it makes you it 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 just works, it works for you. But that was the first book that you know that really I remember being impressed with. I might have to give that a read. I do I tend to get in my head a bit too much. <laughs> That's not if you're prescribing. It's the the Grove. It's the Grove uh, uh, series, uh, not Grove um, Arbor House, I think it is. But they were they were um, Midwestern stuff. But if you could find an old library copy, and the fact was that that Robert E. Howard was pretty much rewritten by Te Theodore Sturgeon and I can't remember the other guy, El Sprague de Camp, um, and those are actually the best best versions. Mm -hmm. so. But uh, there's a lot of a lot of them out there. Yeah, um, I I was not precocious as a reader or a writer at all. I, uh, uh, growing up, uh, most of what I read were like sports biographies. I really enjoyed. Um, weirdly, I tended to read biographies of people who were I never watched play, like Willie Mays or Bronco Nagurski, and. Um, in high school, like if I were reading, not, I only read what was assigned. If I wasn't, I was probably reading a John Grisham novel and, and really enjoying it. Um, uh, and then in high school, I think towards the end of high school, I, um, I, I went through this period. I was, I was kind of floundering. I didn't know what I was going to do after high school. I assumed I'd go to a junior college, um, and uh, there are these AP classes, which are like kind of like you have to like apply to get into um, based on grades. And I thought I should apply for AP English, but I didn't think I was smart enough to do it. Or then, uh, so I didn't. I didn't take the test or whatever. And uh, <laughs> I remember 
on the last day of my junior year, there was a, a final that was being proctored by the AP English teacher for the next year, senior year. And we did the test and it was the last test I was done for the year. Summer was ahead of me and she was walking out the door and I just had this weird feeling. It's only happened once or twice in my life that my future was walking out the door. Wow. And I, I chased her down into the hallway and I was like, uh, Mrs. Egan, hi. Um, is there any chance I could still apply to get into AP English with your class? And she asked who my teacher was my junior year. And I said, Brother Aquinas, which is hilarious because Brother Aquinas taught Lou like yeah. 90 years before <laughs> um, at another high school. And we happened to be right outside Brother Aquinas's classroom. So she walked in. I stood outside. She came back out. And she said, well, Brother Aquinas said, you know, you did well in the class. He was surprised you didn't try and get into AP his, uh, English. And she said, I'll tell you what, read, read these two books over the summer and I'll give you a test on the first day of school. And if you do, okay, I'll let you in. And so the two books were Crime and Punishment and East of Eden. And I read those books so with such intensity and lived them so uh, intensely. Uh, I, I feel like I just swallowed them whole and was, that was like my whole summer was like reading those books. And I showed up at the first day of school, like just ready to take this test. And I go find Mrs. Egan. I was she's like, I'm ready to take the test. She's like, oh, you don't have to take the test. You're in. So like <laughs> she kind of tricked me into becoming a reader. And then in that class we read, I remember we read Catch-22, which kind of changed. It was the first time I had read something that was literature that also was um, seemed to convey my my feeling. Or uh, I, I consider everything I do comes out of comedy, and that was comedy in its purest form. So, it, yeah, I was probably about 18 before I became a serious reader of any kind. Um, but for, after that, I, I tried to make up for lost time. Yeah, I I didn't get to catch twenty two until know, five years ago or so. It just kind of passed me oh, by. When gosh. I read it, I I loved. I mean, it's so funny. Yeah, and yeah. comedy is a big thing for me too. What are some other books like that that you think are hilarious, but you know, literature as well? Fifteen years, the writer who I kind of appreciate, or two of the two of the writers that I I think have had a pretty big influence are. Uh, Evelyn Waugh is kind of earlier novels like Decline and Fall, yeah. uh, which is, I think, Bruce J. Friedman called it a perfect novel. And I would, I would agree. It's, it's like the Sistine Chapel of like a comic novel. And, um, uh, and then uh, Charles Portis, uh, I think, is probably yeah. the great comic voice of, of the last, you know, 50 years in America. And, and probably, I think, is, is in the last 10 years, 15 years is definitely kind of come to the fore again and kind of deserves his place kind of next to Twain, I think. Um, maybe not as, has the same scope, but like his kind of American vision of of the kind of uh, absurd and comic and also deeply human. Um, uh, so yeah, those those two come to mind. Other writers, I, I, I like, um, you know, Mur Muriel Spark, I think has a certain cruel scalpel like genius um uh yeah those three come to mind how about you lou 
Uh, you mentioned one on on your you had on your pick. Paul Beatty's book yeah. um, is just genius. I I think that is probably the funniest book I've read in the last ten years. Um, Sellout. Pardon. Sellout. Sell yeah. 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 And and, <laughs> and and a book that that was rejected forty times, which is also something that. that Intrigue me, but um, no, I and particularly if you grew up in Los Angeles, it's just he, he just nails it. Um, but it's like nobody knew that there were cowboys in Compton, um, until you know they read that book. Um, and in fact, that was a that was a, a, a you know a garden city for, for many years, but uh, yeah, I, I love that book. Um, I feel the same way about some of Invisible Man. Um, you know, that's not that's not a book that most people think of as funny. Um, but I think there are parts in it that are hilarious. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's got uh, the full scope. Uh, the other writer I'd throw in there, like kind of more contemporary, I think, is uh, Sam Lipsight, who I yeah. what he's doing is uh, as a comic stylist. I mean, you can spot a Sam Lipsight sentence from space. I mean, he's just amazing and i just recently read his last one which came out i think about a year or two years ago hark which i mean just has me rolling on the floor and it's so dark and true and lip sighty and um i don't yeah. know i'm gonna have to check him out that's, that's a good yeah he's, he's he, his first uh well it's not his first novel it was the novel that i think kind of got uh it was 2004 called homeland which has nothing to do with the television show it's a man writing letters to his like alumni uh, <laughs> newsletter uh, of his high school and it's a, from a man who has not quite panned out in life um, and it's <laughs> pleading letters uh, it's great so yeah Sam Lipside is I think in, in the last 20 years I think he's kind of had his finger on kind of the dark pulse of like American anxiety in just a really fabulous way I mean, you're saying uh, you could spot one of his sentences from space. I remember clearly we had to read Evelyn Waugh's Vile Bodies uh, in college. And I remember yeah. the professor saying, you know, no one writes prose like Evelyn Waugh does. And like, aside from the laughs, it's just, yeah, I'm always impressed by every sentence when I'm reading it. Yeah, yeah I, I 100% agree. The guy was a complete bastard. His later novels are, are I, I can take or leave, but... Um, yeah, I mean, there's some passages in Brideshead Revisited that are just, like, so stunning. Like, you put the book down. Um, yeah, he's just uh, <laughs> just one of the bigger assholes ever. So, just got some Fortunately, I turned to my right when, when you guys were, and, and this is a book that, if you haven't read it, it is absolutely hilarious. It purports to be the literary biography of Jeffrey Cartwright. Um, excuse me, of Edward Mulhouse um, by Jeffrey Cartwright. He writes this when he's 11 years old. Um, and it's, you know, Milhauser is, is, is genius. That's the genius. thing I loved about him is that he left Brown University on leave um, on, from his MFA and never went back and then wrote, you know, 12, 12 books that, you know, including a Pulitzer Prize winner. But uh, that book and... The other book that I still think is one of the funniest books ever written is Jesus's Son by Dennis Johnson. Um, I haven't read either of those. I will you don't know that on book? The list. I don't. Oh my God! You don't know Den you don't know Dennis Johnson's Jesus's Son? 
<laughs> sorry. Calm down. <laughs> Man, you got to read that. That, 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 that. That's kind of, um, well, Michiko Kakitani thinks it's the best collection of short stories written in the last quarter century. And, and I, I would agree with that. But uh, you're in for a treat. I envy you for that. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> and then after that, you can see the movie they made of it, which All is right. also fairly cool. Right. I'll put them on the list. <laughs> so, yes, I think we all have long, yeah, long lists. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and yeah, yeah. If we won't get anyplace else, believe me. If you really, once I start looking around the rest of the shelves, um, I, I and, just start. Sorry. And one, one last one, Mr. Biswas, A House for Mr. Biswas by B.S. Nepal. Um, which is also sort of screamingly funny. Excellent. I finally started Finnegan's Wake last week, so it might be a while before I get to anything else. I might Uh, take a break after the first book. I I have not done that. I uh, (laughs) uh, So good luck. That's amazing. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, I have no... You're just in the wilderness. Good luck. Bring a machete. I... uh, Uh, I, I had poison ivy for like three weeks and they finally put me on steroids. So like one night I was just like up and like full of energy. I'm looking at my books up like, I've, I've had this book for years. I, you know, I haven't gotten around to it. Tonight's the night to do it at like 1 a.m. And I was like, I mean, I love it. Like it's beautiful sounding and I love all the references. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just getting swept along by it. But, you know, as far as making some sort of sense out of it, that's a whole other story. Yeah, it's. <laughs> It feels, yeah, one of the passages I've, it's more like kind of listening to like a Gregorian chant or something than, you know, uh, you know, what we know as a, as a novel. Um, yeah. yeah. Some reason I've, 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 there's certain things I've, I've decided to put off until my, well, I'm probably there now to my older years. Um, like I always heard you shouldn't re- read Proust until ap- after you're 40. Yeah. So I have never read Proust, um, which is a good excuse not to read Proust, but not anymore because I'm past 40. <laughs> and check off after 50 when he starts to make real sense. Yeah. But, uh, I decided long ago not to read Finnegan's Wake, but instead I've collected versions of the street ballad Finnegan's Wake. And have versions from the Clancy brothers who run about six minutes, uh, Irish Rovers and the Pogues. And then the fastest version is the Dropkick Murphys who bring it in at about two minutes and 30 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) Are either of you JP Donlevy fans? Oh, yes. Yeah. Thank you. I'm yeah, I'm a huge JP Dunleavy fan. Um, And he I think he passed away about two or three years ago. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, He gave I if you have in the Paris Review, they have all those, you know, great interviews. And he gave my favorite writer interview ever. And there's one where they asked, like, why why did you become a writer? And he said, for fame and money. Yeah. Which I think is the only honest answer anyone's ever given. Um, but uh, yeah, was, I think yeah, Lou mentioned the Pogues, who named their famous song "Fairy Tale of New York" after. Yeah. It's not has doesn't have much to do with the Dunleavy's novel "Fairy Tale of New York," but I think that's one of the great comic novels of all time. Um, as far as like set pieces and dialogue, it's just phenomenal. Yeah, totally unique. He's one of those writers who basically wrote the same book every time yeah. but you forgive him um yeah. so that was actually 
one of the earliest bonds that Jim and I had wow. was with Don Levy. And yeah. one of the quotes, one of the things I used to always quote, and it was a quote that I found in my junior year in a writing class. And one of my teachers brought it in and it's, 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 it's a quote from Don Levy. And he says, writing essentially is turning our worst moments into money. That and is I a fantastic that was a really profound <laughs> and optimistic yeah. um, way of looking at, at, at writing. I'm thinking, yeah, yeah. And, and, and um, <laughs> he did it quite a lot. He was one of the few who actually could turn it into money. But uh, yeah. yeah, that one stayed with me. Yeah, good call. Yeah. yeah, kind of put him on the list. So what was it that made each of you decide that writing was something you wanted to do with your life? Um, I'll, I'll feel that first. Uh, I, for me, it was, uh, less something I was like running towards. And I was, I felt like I was being chased by, um, you know, in your twenties, you, you like, you have the notion of being a writer and what that would mean. And it's totally false. And some people can figure it out early. I was not one of them. And I think, um, yeah, for, I, from like basically like 25 to 30, I didn't write anything. I, but I read a lot. And I think, um, at some point in that period, you know, I, um, I had to grow up a little bit more and all, all these things, you know, you have some losses in life, et cetera. And I think uh, at some point I, I just, felt like I wanted to try it again, but I did, I didn't do it with any sense of there being a career and I still don't, I don't, there's been no plan. And, but there's just been kind of a, a dedication to trying to get something right. You know, I guess that's just what that means. That's craft, right? I guess like, you know, you read the good stuff and you try and want to make the good stuff. And at that point, I, I, I had a pretty clear that it's pretty foolish to expect a, a career out of writing. Um, but once you kind of realize you're going to do it anyway, that's kind of maybe the actual the real beginning of of a writing life, I suppose. Um, I guess I guess once you give up, that's when you begin. Um, so, uh, yeah, and it's it's carried on. I mean, obviously, in this in the last four or five years i've been incredibly lucky as far as like i you know i work in tv now and that pays the bills and that's i never thought that would happen i always um but i feel like if i had planned if that was my goal to do that it just i would have never it just wasn't ever going to happen so it it was more just kind of sticking with something that i thought i was good at um and then you know, I, I'm someone who's gotten two or three incredibly lucky breaks and I try and honor that <laughs> by, uh, by doing the work. Yeah. That's basically, I, I didn't see it as possible as a career, except as a journalist. Um, but what actually started for me in high school, I worked for the Glendale public library system and there were two librarians there in the fiction area, uh, Marie Weiss and Eva Thompson, and Marie in particular, um, I think she figured out I was going to be a writer before I did, because she would press books on me. 
And she would say, and it would be always, you have to read this. And the first book she gave me was a book by Nell Dunn, an English writer called Up the Junction. It's 139 pages. It's the first book I ever read cover to cover and then opened it up get into page one. I was like 16 or 17 years at the time. And I was just knocked out. Um, if you haven't read her, it's a remarkable book. It sold about 2 million copies in paperback. It was made into two different movies, one by Mike Loach, I think, uh, or Mike Lee. Um, anyway. You, you can, <laughs> Mike you can, Loach is a perfect, perfect. Yeah, perfect combo, movie. good combo. Yeah, a movie that needed subtitles. Uh, but basically, it's a, an heiress from Chelsea who lives in Battersea, which is this really rugged area. And it's has it's the most compressed writing I've ever come across. I actually read her before I read Hemingway. Once I read Hemingway, I found out how much she'd gotten from Hemingway, except she took him to the next level in terms of just absolutely giving you just enough to, 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 to keep it moving. Uh, but it's a remarkable book. So that was the first book. And the second book she gave me was Fat City by Leonard Gardner. And that was, as I tell people, the book that ruined me for the low wire. Um, because the fact that that book was even published meant for a higher generation of writers that it was possible. It was possible to, to write a book that mattered. Uh, and it was writing about Stockton, California. Uh, one of the least promising areas that you could imagine, um, except there are two books that have come out of there, Maxine Hong Kingston's Women Warrior and Learned Gardner's Fat City. And that's a better average than San Francisco has or New York, as far as I can tell. Um, <laughs> and, you know, those, those are the books that, that convinced me. But it was a long jump from that to actually writing fiction. I thought I was going to be a journalist. And then when I got to UC Santa Cruz, um, I took a writing class and realized that that was where I was headed. Um, but most of the writers I know, you don't have a choice. But I remember in my first workshops, I'd be dealing with these people who said they had to write every day. If they didn't write every day, they were just destroyed and, and helpless. And fortunately, those guys would drop out after about three classes. But, um, you know, I never understood that. I wrote what I could. You know, and it was always kind of, you know, streak stuff, um, but uh, never thinking that, you know, you're going to be able to make a living at it. Um, and uh, and for me, at least, that's been true. So, <laughs> so let's talk about Shaky Town. Um, tell me how it all came together. Like, give me some history, because in, in the intro, you mentioned that uh, Dora Pena found crazy life in a San Antonio library back in 91. Yeah. I assume that had been around for a while, which the, the earliest portions of that book, and that would include crazy life, the garlic eater were all written in the mid to late eighties, 85, 86, 87. In other words, I always knew I was going to write a book about where I grew up. And where I grew up nominally was South Glendale, but where I did most of my growing up was a barrio called Tunerville, which is right on the LA River. And that was who I hung out with. Those were the guys. I didn't date an Anglo girl till I was like 18, 19. Uh, but that was who I ran with. Uh, and I just, I knew that I wanted to write about where I grew up and how I grew up because nobody else was doing it. 
and I didn't realize two years later that we were not suitable subjects for literature. But uh, um, you know, by then I was already writing the story, so it didn't didn't really matter. Um, but as I say, it was it was a book that was assembled over about a thirty year period. Um, and part of that is the fact that I'm a perfectionist. I'm a, something of a miniaturist. Um, and I'm also really stubborn. And I won't, you know, I won't, I, I write, I, I write to suit myself. And, and uh, um, you know, this ended up exactly as I wanted it to be, which was not, would not have been the case had it been published with a, a large New York publisher. Um, there would have been adjustments to be made. There would have been concessions to be made. And the fact is that there, there were a lot of changes. I mean, originally that book was about 120 pages longer. Um, and then when we took out, I cut out about six stories. And uh, even then, um, going through it the second time with Jim, ended up cutting out about another 35 pages. Um, and it just, really became less is more. But uh, the whole process was really kind of a joy. Uh, and part of it was that it took so long, it, it was such a, over such a long period of time that you had time to get it right um, yeah. and, and do it exactly the way you wanted to. So, hmm. yeah. I mean, just something as simple as working with the artist on the cover, Steve Powers, Espo. I mean, the guy was just amazing. But that was like, you know, three months talking about what the cover should be about. You know, a, an artist who reads the goddamn book, you know, <laughs> when have you run into that before? You know, and got it. Yeah. And, you know, at that point, we started talking. We realized, as Jim says, that we were bonding on some molecular level. And, 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 and once I started talking about the place and mentioned Vandy Camp's drive-in, which was this fantastic modern it was like one of the great examples of modern architecture and with these windmills you know turning and neon and once he heard about that it was just like bam and uh um there's one thing you have uh you you don't have to you just have the advanced review copy right yeah yeah okay um take a look at that cover through dark glasses because the way that steve did it you're supposed to be um looking at neon on a dark night through a car windshield. So look at it through some dark glasses and you'll be amazed at how it pops. Um, nice. and, and the printers couldn't get the black as black as any of us ever wanted, but, but it's still, you put on dark glasses and you get an idea of what it can it be. Yeah. Weirdly, when you photograph it, it shows it, it it's even brighter. Yeah. yeah. And I dug how the, the, sort of sun palm smile uh, hammock smiley face appeared like in the text that was a cool little motif yeah our book designer did a great job uh i that was that's like those kind of fun things that happened along the way that i wasn't expecting and then i thought yeah, yeah that was really cool and like you know the whole, the whole deal you know with tiger band publishing shaggy town it was to make like a beautiful book i mean um the thing you can hold in your hands and and make it lovely so a lot of you know <laughs> we wanted to put his, yeah some care into that and um uh yeah i think we i'm, I'm very proud of of the uh, the object uh as a you know and lose writing aside whatever i can take or leave but the book itself <laughs> <Looks cool. laughs> 
the book itself is, is good. So. That that's really interesting about the the time it took to write it because I I couldn't really t- had I not picked that up in the intro I wouldn't have been able to tell which I you know is the goal yeah. I assume but um like I, I loved how it sort of built upon itself like by the Wavo story which is the fourth or fifth I was like really really engrossed you know staying up later and later to read it. Um, yeah, and it shifts back and forth in time, which was a conscious choice as well. Um, in other words, with crazy life, it's talking about something that happens after um, a book, a, a you know, story in Huevos, excuse me, in Gonzalo's Rifa that happens, you know, 100 pages later in the book. Um, and But that weave seems to work for most people. Yeah. I love I love playing playing with time in that way. So. so I know you've written about this, Jim. It's in your intro, but for anyone listening who doesn't know the story, how did you two meet? Uh, Lou and I met. I think it was uh, September October two thousand five. Um, basically, I at the time I was working uh, in plumbing sales and lived in Long Beach and. Uh, yeah, I hadn't written anything in a while or a long time. Um, and during that period, I went, I had an old friend who she had a, my friend uh, Liv, she had a party somewhere up in LA. And then I went and like, I, I just hadn't, I wasn't very social during this period. I was just like on the road all day and then going home and falling asleep to sports center. And so I went to this little party you know wasn't but there was a lot of really cool people there and I had a nice time and she didn't she was taking a class at UCLA extension um and some of her classmates were there and it was just like oh this kind of seems fun and that kind of got in my head of like that's something I kind of want to do and it, it almost at that point had less to do with writing just like I just want to go someplace where I can you know talk about books and maybe I'll write something and so by the you know eventually i did sign up for a class and i looked up lou and i looked up his book and i uh i didn't know uh who lou was i don't mean i didn't like i didn't know who anyone was <laughs> just like but i saw i saw his book and i i ordered his book and uh his first novel la breakdown and i really loved it and uh, i don't yeah i probably hadn't i probably had started it when i took the class and then met Lou and yeah, so it was just a, a great experience in the class. And, um, I took another class with Lou probably the spring or something. And then I kind of, Lou is, Lou has mentored like a generation of writers. And, um, I, you know, it just, we kind of got to be pals and, uh, he, he has like an informal writing group at his house and I started going there and then I got to know, Lou's wife, Allison, and all there's kind of just this whole, you know, group of people, writers in LA. And um yeah, and it was really great. And so we've we've always, yes, um uh so we've known each other a long time. And I moved back, to, I was gone for a while, I moved back to LA. Um and yeah, I mean, it's just yeah, just a long, a long friendship and along the way a great mystery was to me it was like why wasn't lou better known as a writer i mean he's really well known as a, as a teacher and uh someone who's been published in lot you know lots of great places um and it just 
you know, one of these things, you know, um, every writer goes through it, but I think, um, in a sense, they're all whiners because we lose that weight, weight much longer. Um, and a series of flukes in my kind of career, essentially. But basically, I was like, it's it's I it's time, it's now to to put this book out. Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of like the the result of just fifteen years of bullshitting about books and playing terrible golf and eating uh, lose a great cook. So I've been uh blessed to sit at this table many a night uh favor i've never ever returned and i don't think i ever will um uh so yeah it, it's it's uh, we had this great launch uh last week and uh i won't get into the weed but like tiger van i i partner with a we're an imprint of a of a independent press uh larger independent press uh prospect park books uh which was founded by um uh, Colleen Bates, who's a wonderful and hugely uh, responsible for a lot of this happening because she kind of guided me through this whole process of publishing something. Um, but at, at the launch, she kind of talked about just the this this kind of galaxy of, of things of people who know each other and how this book kind of comes out of that. It, it, it's it's a, out of a literary community, which I probably have taken for granted for a lot of a lot of the time. But it's it's a real thing. I feel lucky to to have come through it and to now maybe uh replenish it so um anyway that's it's a very long answer <laughs> thank you for indulging yeah when did you showed get... up in uh classes in 2005 and and this was still back when i was asking people what they were reading i sort of gave it up you know about five years later because i was so disappointed with what they were reading but <laughs> Jim started talking about Evan Connell. And I looked at him and say, how the fuck do you even know who Evan Connell is? I mean, this is a brilliant San Francisco writer. Uh, and he's best known for Son of the Morning Star. But he did Diary of a Rapist. He did, you know, I mean, he just did these extraordinary books. Um, you know, mostly written in the 60s um, and early 70s, Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. Um, and the fact that he, Jim even knew who this guy was just kind of startled me. And then he started going through some of the other things he was reading. And, and I thought, oh, well, this is, this is somebody who's serious. And, and, and then, of course, once I started reading his writing, there was in sort of an instantaneous bond. Um, a lot of ways we read about the same people. Yeah, um, kind of a misshapen Catholic upbringings in Southern California places and so forth yeah so there's a there's a lot a lot there and um yeah uh and we both had brother aquinas as a instructor yeah, which still yeah. blows my mind which is the funniest yeah, thing ever yeah. but brothers anyway. of saint patrick Love yeah I, I don't think he's with us anymore but. no that's and of course that, 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 that's the other reason that, that many of my books take so long to publish because i have to wait till everybody's dead um so they don't sue me um <laughs> Uh, if you know me yeah. well enough, you could go through my books and find the names of a lot of friends and neighbors. And, and you know, for instance, if you go to The Last Dance um, and you start reading the names that are in, in there, I mean, one of the names that's mentioned is is uh, Miguel Sandoval and his wife, Linda. And of course, that is Miguel Sandoval, the actor who ended up reading that story at our book launch. 
Um, but I have a habit of doing that. And I, it started with LA breakdown. And, and, uh, so I, I, I have to, I have to make sure that everybody's dead before the books are published. So they won't sue me. But, uh, but the other thing is like, when you do that, you can actually, you know, you can actually, I actually am making most of my living now by, by writing titles for other people. But the other thing I do, if I'm working on a story, um, and I'll put somebody in the story and then explain to them that, that for, you know, some, a certain sum, they can upgrade. In other words, like you don't have to be a pederast priest, you know, <laughs> you could be the noble, you know, um, guy whistleblower, you know, but it's, you know, it's about $500 difference. So, um, and that works out pretty good. It's about the money, like Don Levy said. Yeah. yeah. More money in titles than there is in writing. So. <laughs> What was cool was that earlier in the year I had read um, John Doe's oral histories of L.A. Punk. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with those or if, if you uh, were into any of that music at all, because it was kind of that, you know, the 80s time period and all those bands and sort of the the cool chapters about, you know, Los Lobos and the Latino punk scene. I was wondering if you, uh, you were a fan of that stuff. Jim was more into punk than I was, I think. Um, I had kind of a really weird education. I got locked in on Lieber and Stoller in the early 50s and middle 50s. I can remember listening to Coasters searching over and over and over again. Um, and then Dylan. But, you know, I was always kind of out of the loop. Um, I have a friend, Steve Erickson, who's a well-known writer in town. And I think the only thing Steve ever was impressed with that I, that I did or, or envy before was I got to meet Joe Strummer from the clash and Joe and actually, and I actually got to be buddies. And the reason was I didn't know who the clash were. Uh, and that apparently is a really good starting point with any rock and roll hero, because, you know, if, if you don't know who they are and you don't know what they represent, you can talk to each other as human beings and, Joe was this really engaging guy um, and actually explained something about this world. We were talking about another, I used to do a lot of journalism and we were talking about another musician I had interview I, I found to be sort of an asshole. And Joe, and I, and I was saying something about that and Joe looked at me and said, well, who or what would you be if nobody had said no to you for a decade? And I started thinking, I said, yeah, okay. Um, but uh, um as I say, my, my, my education, I mean, Steve had his revenge. I got back and he bought me at Clash on Broadway, the three CD set. And I suddenly realized, you know, what I had a hold of. I was just amazed. But so I'm still I'm still discovering stuff now. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's also it's a really retro list. Los Lobos is on the, the top. That was actually the soundtrack we had for the book launch was Kiko on the Lavender Moon um, along with, but also about 12 mariachi songs, rancheras and mariachis. And, uh, you know, which is going to be played at my wake. You know, everybody has to listen to the La Negra every third song. Yeah. So. I was going to ask, is, uh, is it usual to have three mariachi bands at a function? When I was reading that, uh, no, story, I was like, is no, that that's really unusual. That's <laughs> okay. really unusual. But, it's the kind of thing you do if you really want to make a splash. Uh, and as I say, when you are surrounded by mariachis, it's like the best stereo in the world. 
There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. And, 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 you know, they basically have to stagger themselves. The horns have to be in the back. So it's like, they don't overwhelm, but uh, no, it's, it's the story about whose songs is true. Um, you know, that if I hadn't had my wallet taken away from me, I would have, I would have bankrupted myself. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I grew up loving the songs of the revolution in particular. My grandfather was essentially a village elder in a little tiny village in Baja, California, El, El Rosario. And I started going there when I was about six or seven. So that was that was the music I was raised around. And I still still have, you know, I'll, I'll still, you know, get misty eyed over the Alita. Um, but uh, um, but it's, no. it's a real mix. Jim is actually the music guy. Among yeah, I, I haven't read that John Doe book, uh, and I should, cause that, all that stuff's pretty big for me. I mean, I generationally, I missed like the heyday of like Minutemen and Black Flag and, and all that, but it, it was still, you know, I worked at a gas station with guys who were like seven years older than me who had gone to all those shows and were complete maniacs. And, um, yeah, so I, I came to, you know, be very interested in all that stuff. I mean, some of it's really great to listen to, but culturally it's really fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then in college um, from 94 to 98, I went to Loyola Marymount, which has a radio station KXLU, which was kind of like the flagship of like punk in the eighties. And it was well known for breaking a lot of bands like um, Nirvana back in place. Um so I, you know, I did a radio show there. So I was kind of ensconced in the, the LA music scene of the '90s, um, and it was weird when I think about it now, just as it's not like this was an era where like there was like an ethic of like indie, like underground, like this was our own thing. We don't care about you know majors and all this stuff, which I think is. I don't know how you would explain that to someone who's like 20 years old now. Like, what do you mean? Like you were <laughs> deliberately trying to avoid money essentially, um, which is such a weird, but like that ethic was very strong. And I, um, you know, which is weird because I, like in the sixties, like I love the stuff I love now the most is kind of crazy 60s psych and garage. And I'm always kind of searching through that stuff and all those bands, you know, they didn't want to be obscure psych garage bands. They wanted to be the Rolling Stones. Like they, they just were passed over. And I've always, that's always been a big thing for me is like, why did, why did we miss this at the time? And um, anyway, so, so I think some of that mentality of the, of a, of a punk rock kind of indie rock uh, DIY ethic has kind of stayed with me in, in some fashion. And I think, it is, it does animate a little of like Tiger Man books in a sense of like, yeah. this is, uh, we don't really know what we're doing. We don't really know how long this will last. Uh, we're going to put something in the world and see what happens. And um, I love that. I mean, I, I think, um, I'm sure John did like uh, uh, Henry Rollins get in the van, <laughs> which is, is an amazing, it's his tour diary with Black Flag in the 80s. And uh among everything else, the thing that's crazy about them is just how goddamn hard they worked. Yeah. I mean, they were, they were eating <laughs> dog food <laughs> like in abandoned warehouses. 
but they just worked really hard. It was such a weird mentality that it, it's it's hard to get across. Um, and they were so like weirdly monkish and aesthetic and all this shit. I don't want to be. I don't want to go down that road. I don't want to be eating dog food. That's that's the, <laughs> that's the that's the line. Um, but yeah, some of the, all that that kind of that chaos and kind of uh, um, all the different kind of sociological components of that era of punk are are of endless fascination to me and have kind of influenced you know um my thinking in some ways that i feel is kind of antique like i just don't think um if you're a band now you are in a sense you have more freedom and more than you ever have in the sense that you can't make money there's no more rock bands there's nowhere to go so you might as well just do exactly what you want um and i i think you know um right now like uh you know, in California the last like 10 years, this kind of neo garage stuff like Ty Siegel and uh, the OCs. Uh, we use a couple OC tracks uh, on Lodge 49. Um, those guys have a similar, they're just maniacs. They put out like three records a year and they don't, they don't, they're not crafting a career. They're not like, there's no, there's no way up to the top. They're just doing what they want. And so in that sense, if you are comfortable with, a small audience um, and just putting something good in the world and you have the means to do it. It is a very good time because with social media and all that stuff, you can kind of reach people in different places. Um, But also everyone's screwed. So, (laughs) but there really is something like you were saying before Lou about knowing that it's what you want it to be. That no one else has interfered with it, that it's yours. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, this process was a joy. And I was talking to my friend, Dana Johnson, who was also part of our launch, Jaina's. Um, I, I can't call her my oldest student because she doesn't like that, but I will say she's my earliest student. Yeah. And she's now she's the head of the writing program at uh, the doctoral program at USC and a full professor. Yeah. And a grand writer. Uh, and, uh, but she was a student of mine in 92. And I was talking about the process of the book and particularly about you know, the two, three months we, we had to work on the cover. And she said, shit, you know what happened to, you know, you know how I find out of my cover? I said, what? She said, well, about, uh, I think it was about two days before the book was supposed to come out. They just sent me this photo and they said, here's your cover. I said, what? Uh, are there any other options? And they said, oh, no, didn't we talk to you about this about six weeks ago? No. And that was that was what she got. You know, and it's just sort of like, and it's same thing with the editing all the way down the way. Um, I don't know that we actually did any line editing at all. The only thing we did was cuts. Right. Yeah. Um, no, there was no line by line work at all. So basically, what you what you see is is you know, um, <laughs> is my version. I wanted there to be a murder mystery at the heart of all this, um, but Lou refused. So, spoiler: there's no, there's no murder mystery. <laughs> yeah, but we, we'll, we'll we have to work out the, the 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 through line on this, you know, the selling point. And when LA Breakdown, which is my first novel, came out, and and uh, somebody they would always get the question, "Well, what's the book about?" I said, "Well, I think it's about." life and death and love in the streets of Los Angeles, but everybody else thinks it's about fucking street racing. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so we, we haven't both, worked out our, our signature line for that yet, but, uh, yeah. uh, but I, I think that, that Jim's, Jim's uh, uh, manifesto 
pretty much says it all. Can you, can you, can you, can you remember, can you remember that Jim? Or do I have to recite it? Right. Yeah. So we have a website, tigervanbooks.com. You want, um, uh, but yeah, no, the, the Tiger Van Manifesto is, um, uh, what is it? <laughs> we believe in books. Uh, am I mir- mirrored here? Can you see it? Yep. We got you. We believe in books. Our business model is failure. We plan to lose money and fold quickly. Join us. <laughs> All right. And yep. of course, I've been trying to get Jim to add two other components. Uh, one is not sold in stores. Um, and, but I, you know, the problem is that he's got the tiger van up and running, but he hasn't got it registered because we figured that, you know, if if you buy 10 books, we'll deliver it for you. You know, we'll deliver it in the tiger van and then we'll read from the back. You know, there's actually enough room for people, for 10 people to get in there. Um, but that's one model. And the other model that, that we have used at the book launch was, um, you don't have to read the book you do have to buy the book. Yeah. And yeah. that's been pretty successful. <laughs> smart. You know, once the pressure is off, yeah. people know that they don't yeah. have to say, At that point, come and tell me what they thought about the book. It's much yeah. easier to sell, you know, particularly yeah. people, you know, who know you. At that point, you can buy 10 copies. You're not going to yeah. read it yeah. 10 times. Yeah. Some people did. Some people did. Because it's like, you know, because I'm never going to ask them, what did you think of the book? Yeah. I like the idea, delivery idea. Do you know, when Gene Simmons put out his vault box set a few years back and for like 50 grand, he would deliver it to your house. <laughs> it just seems so insane. Wow. Okay. This is all we, coming together. Uh, we, we'll be I don't know, I don't know if we can justify charging 50 grand, but we'll see. Well, I, I think 50 bucks and if we pay for the gas. Because that's yeah. gonna be a gas talk. So. Yeah, good guy. Yeah, that that would that would totally do it. That would totally do it. So, and God knows we got nothing else to do. <laughs> so, what are the plans for what's coming next? Uh, I I mean, this we're we just kind of want to figure out how to do it on this book, and then um, uh, we'll see. I, I I've um we're kind of in a transition because colleen bates i mentioned earlier she's she has retired from her you know position and so um we have a few things to figure out but i would like to if possible just keep publishing kind of two types of things one like literary great literary fiction like shaky town and also really kind of strange niche stuff um uh maybe some of it inspired by uh the erstwhile television program lodge 49 um uh but we'll see i think oh, this has been a learning process um and uh but it's been great i mean once once you kind of see the book and get it you kind of like that gets you excited so um I, there won't be probably anything for you know well this year obviously um but Maybe we could figure out something for next fall um, and go from there. But uh, yeah, the great thing is no one's waiting for it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we have all the time in the world um, to figure it out. So, um, so I'm also doing this while you know working on other stuff. So um, it's, a, it's it'll be a labor of love, and um, 
you know, in the fullness of time, it will be what it's supposed to be. You got to have L. Marvin Metz out there. I mean, that's just. Um, we'll see. Know. See if I can track him down in Mexico. Yeah. 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 A, um, if you survive the flight. Yeah. Yeah. But. Uh, so the, yeah, you got something else in the works? Um, I have another novel that's finished um, called Hollywood Ski. And it's similar to Shaky Town in that it moved back and forth in time. The difference is that it's about um, a failed screenwriter, or actually he calls himself a faded screenwriter. Uh, he says only poets can fail. Um, screenwriters can only fade because the bar is set so low. And at one point, he was a fairly successful screenwriter. He was started as a novelist. And um, he made the mistake of taking a writer's strike seriously. And when after a producer, he had information that a producer was writing during the strike and hiring and making other writers work on, on it during the strike. And he went after him. And um, at which point the producer went after him and his career was basically destroyed. So now he teaches at small Christian colleges. He teaches screenwriting. Um, he teaches, um, um, you know, Wherever he can, he scuffles to, to make it. Uh, you can find the two, two stories, the starting story, if you go to the New England Review, if you go to their archive and just type in Lou Matthews, um, you'll find two of the stories from that, from that book. Um, some animals are more equal than others, which is very loosely based on the making of Walker uh, with Alex Cox in Nicaragua, uh, which is something that I actually um participated in I, I was covering this covering the story for mother jones and also had um, an acting part in that i play a bishop saying a prayer over the corpse of marshall barley matlin and then ed harris shoved me out of the room so that was pretty exciting but uh so so those two stories give you a pretty good sense of what the book's going to be about but it's it's eight stories about a faded screenwriter named Dale Davis. And then he has three stories that he's written that sort of chart his dissolution. Um, uh, it's sort of the rake's progress for, for screenwriters. But uh, so that one's done and, and don't know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, mm -hmm. As I say, if, if something happens with Shaky Town, it takes off. And if somebody west of the east of the Mississippi reads it um, and gets interested in what else I might have, because as we state on the dust jacket, I've written seven books and published three. Um, so there, there are four other books out there. You know, five books if you count if you count the the cookbook. But uh, um, the cookbook that's kind of a that's kind of a yeah. Uh, that's probably going to be the bestseller. Probably, probably. This was this is something I put together for my daughter. That might actually sell. Yeah. Yeah. What are your specialties? Across uh, the board, but mostly um, what's called Cal California Mexican, which is like a lot like Tex-Mex. But in other words, uh, I, I'm fairly famous for my mother's chiles rellenos, um, which are not like the chiles rellenos you get in the, the usual Mexican restaurant. They're canned chilies um, or hatched chilies that have been, uh, but they're baked rather than they're fried, but then baked. So it's a whole different thing and a whole different flavor. But uh, um, 
that's very much a California recipe. But uh, uh, most of these recipes were published in the LA Times. Um, I was a I was a food writer for about a decade and a restaurant reviewer for seven years and forty three pounds. Uh, and uh, um, so there's a there's a big backlog. But you may have lose said that line once or twice. You may have yes. <laughs> that's a certain polish to it. That, uh, <laughs> I first thought uh, it's, it. it's well line. rubbed. It's well rubbed. <laughs> That's the problem with Jim is that he catches me on my on my tropes. Uh, <laughs> yes, we all have them. They're I remember tropes, a, so. a journalist friend of mine pointing out that you know being a food writer is the way to go because at least you know you're getting fed. Yeah. Well, it <laughs> it was mostly it was the people around me who really loved it because I would have to go to a restaurant twice. I would have to take four people with me. And of course, their only obligation was to eat the food and then occasionally let me have a bite. Um, and I ended up actually have an expandable fork that goes about, you know, that comes out of a handle and it's about that long so that I can reach across the table um, and, and, and definitely spear, you know, the best portion of whatever's on somebody else's plate. But um, when my daughter graduated, when she got her, her, her doctorate, I said, what do you want for your present? She said, your recipes. But being the thrifty freelancer that I was, I wouldn't just write them down. I had to get paid to do it. So um, I started started writing that. So there's now about 35 to date. And but they all come with stories. Oh, nice. Uh, so that it, there's uh, if are you a foodie at all? Do you do you do you? Yeah, but I, I have a very strict diet. So. Okay. All vegan right. and gluten-free. If but you go I do to love Taste Magazine, which is the online component for 10 Speed Press and Norton, and it's it's the biggest food site in the world, uh, you'll find a story there called Chili Verde, um, which was actually part of Shaky Town and was the last story. It was supposed to be the last story in the book, and we cut it. Um, and um, that's about the burrito king of Shaky Town. Um, and it concludes with a recipe. Uh, which is my recipe for chili verde. So the, the cookbook is a lot like that. Every every recipe comes with a story. I like um, that. And uh, so it, it, it's, it's, you could have a lot fewer recipes and a lot more stories that way. Speaking of stories, um, I, <laughs> Lodge 49, are we going to, can you talk, is, are we going to know? At some point, what what happens next? Or <laughs> can you talk about this? Uh, all, all I can say is, you know, I I'm I'm still very heartbroken and um, uh, that it got canceled um, uh, for reasons that uh, I understand, but also, um, yeah. Change of executives that happens. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, for now, I can't say there's anything going to happen. I will say this: like the, for me, the the show is our actors, and there's no version of finishing the story that would be at all satisfying to me mm. that doesn't include them. So, um, putting uh, something like as a novel, I mean, level one, a novel would take a decade. I mean, I'm current. The novel I'm currently writing is like 
eight years past deadline. So like, um, and yeah, and just to like, oh, this is how, like, I will never just say like, you, you can't do it. Like it, um, so I, I'm open to the possibility of Sunday, maybe figuring out a way to do it with our cast. Um, uh, but in the meantime, I just, yeah, I just hope people keep finding it and, um, spreading the word about it. Otherwise there's no, you know, I don't, there's nothing I can do. Um, uh, but stranger things have happened and, uh, I just, I'm very proud of what we made. And I think, um, yeah, we didn't get to finish it, but I think we, we delivered something pretty special that, um, I think hopefully the, the world will catch up with at some point. Um, in a sense, we're, you know, I like to be, you know, like a psych band from the sixties that, you know, never, you know, uh, quite made it, but maybe is rediscovered. So we'll see. Hopefully it won't take 40 years, but we'll see. Um, but for $50,000, he will come to your house and tell you the ending. <laughs> yeah. In kiss makeup. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that might uh, be the way to do it. I, we didn't talk about pinching. Uh, I always assumed yeah. the Lodge 49 was a reference. So what do you? Yeah, it's weird. I, I like with pinching, I feel like the, it might be an overdetermined uh, signifier there for our show in the sense that when I was writing it, I, I didn't really, I wasn't thinking of pinching. And when it came time to title the show, I was like, all those lodges have numbers. Like it has to be, you know, Lodge 49, it has a nice ring to it. But then when I step back, I can see the influence. I have a big pension reader. Um, I happen to, my life happens to cross a lot of the things he was writing about, like it kind of the, you know, 60s aerospace and its legacy and, you know, all these things and kind of like uh, basically the pensions like, something else is going on beneath the surface that we can't, can't quite see. That's like the general mood um, that I've always found, you know, delicious. And um, so, yeah, in that sense, it, it, it's, it's an overall influence. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's not, it doesn't go, there's other, right. I think like, you know, someone like Evan Escanal or Portis or Borges is probably actually a bigger influence on what actually is happening in the story, but kind of like some of the milieu, some of the um, moods are definitely a you know huge influence from Pynchon, who I, you know, I he's amazing. He's the best. He's still with us. He's still, you know, um, yeah. So who knows? Um, I remember. I kind of I know where he lived in Manhattan Beach when he's out here in the sixties. I forget how I kind of came across it, but I, I knew the, I know the apartment and about seven, eight years ago, I was wandering by it because I was in Manhattan beach and it was for rent and, and the door was open. And so I wandered in and there was someone painting. So I stood inside there and I had no money at this point. I wasn't a TV jerk. Otherwise I may have like gone into tiny studio on one of those terraced hillsides overlooking the Pacific, but it's where he wrote a good portion of um, uh, Gravity's Rainbow. And yeah, now there's probably some like trust run USC kid in there um, who doesn't have no fucking clue. But 
yeah, no, so that was a big deal. Um, he's always, you know, a lot of my reading life kind of kicked off with discovering Pynchon in college. Like it, it just sends you in a ton of different directions. And I was, you know, that's a period where I was kind of maybe more interested, more bigger intellectual pursuits. And at some point as a writer, you need to make yourself stupid. And so I'm, I, most of the stuff now I think is more pulls at the heart rather than the brain maybe. But um, I've gone back and read all the stuff. Uh, since we did launch 49 it's been a joy so um so yeah the 49 it's it's there i think it was a little accidental or random that i put it there but then i when i stepped back i could kind of see like oh it's probably inevitable so i um i lived in la in 2016 actually actually in atwater village so it was cool getting oh, okay. all the glendale references in uh yeah. shaky town but one day i i had got the address and i made a pilgrimage down to manhattan beach oh, wow. yeah yeah the, the door wasn't open. I didn't get to go inside, but it was super exciting. Like just being there. Yeah. And like, Wow. <laughs> this is how I, this is how I found it. Cause in 2003, I went to London for the first time and the BFI had showed this weird documentary, which I don't know if anyone like is someone kind of, it's kind of about Pynchon and like someone like was trying to trace where he had lived and they went and they talked to an old girl, girlfriend of his they didn't say the address or anything, but she was just standing outside this apartment. And I kind of just took a mental picture in my head of like, I'm going to go find that. Um, I don't know whatever happened to that documentary. It's actually really strange. Um, uh, Cause I only saw it just there once. Wow. When I got back to LA, I wandered around Manhattan beach. And I was like, that's it. That's where it is. And so I knew. And then later I think, if he, like yeah the dress kind of got out there at some point um but i i did detective work i went and nice. found it yeah yeah do you know the name of the documentary i would love to see that i i can't even remember it it was really weird and i had a, had a weird experience with it because they actually towards the end i didn't like it because they were like they they found him in new york and they like i think showed like a modern photo of him or like a video and it really pissed me off. And I, they kind of warned you about it. And I remember I, I closed my eyes. It was like, I'm not going to fucking do it. And nice. I, I remember having a really strange, like, I, it was like, it was an interest, semi-interesting documentary. And then I like, oh, this is a violation. Fuck you. And I covered my eyes. Um, I may have dreamed all this. Maybe this documentary <laughs> doesn't actually exist. Someone should look at it, like, go find it. But um, uh, yeah. Um, no, he, he definitely kind of is always hovering in the shadows. And if you spent any time in Southern California, like, um, uh, yeah, I, I will, I don't know to plug, uh, my friend, uh, Josh Tyree, JM Tyree. He, he just wrote a book, um, called the counter force, which is a really accessible, really great book about in particular inherit vice, the book and the movie, um, and but it's also just an overall take on pension and our current moment. It's just really a great book. Um, I he's very kindly gives a shout out to Lodge 49, which is really cool. Um, so any pension fans out there, you should read The Counterforce by it's Jay Tyree. Great, it's a great little book, great little book. So, yeah, there's a lot of cross pollination. And one of the people who taught in the writers program with me is a woman named Phyllis Gebauer, who was. She's the only person I know who had a blurb on her novel from Thomas Pynchon. Wow. And it's because she and her fr her husband were close friends of Pynchon's. 
both in Seattle and in Manhattan Beach. And um, at one point, she donated, she had, I think, copies of every one of Pynchon's book, pristine copies that were signed, which she donated to the writer's program. And um, along with other things, there were some photos. And one of them was a photo in that apartment um, in Manhattan Beach. Um, We also learned that he lived, which isn't documented, in West Covina for a sizable period of time. And the way we found that out was that his agent, Melanie Jackson, who's now married to, um, one point I had some connections with her and I sent her Steve Erickson. Steve was there in the office and happened upon a letter that was to Melanie from West Covina with, you know, from pension. So it's like, Jesus, you know, you learn all this. Yeah, what are we doing? What are, we're just all these weird stalkers here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, he, he's, he knows he gets it. He's the smartest one. Cause he, he just, he left. He doesn't need to deal with any of it. Yeah. Axel, well, this has been great. Thank you guys for coming on the show. Is there anything you want to add before we sign off? No, man, I really appreciate yeah. uh, you having us on. And um, yeah, it means a lot, you know, uh, people taking the time to, you know, check out Shaky Town. And um, so it's very cool. So thank you. Cool, There's a couple of things I want to talk to you about after, because I don't want you to give out your address on the air because you don't want fans or Gene Simmons coming over. <laughs> uh, but there's a couple of things I want to send to you and, and, and tell you about. So. Excellent. All right. Hope you enjoyed that. I know I did. And yeah, Lou is sending me a hardcover copy of Shaky Town, which is awesome because I just had the uh, advanced paperback copy. So yeah, I'm excited to see that cover. And he's sending me a copy of Jesus's son, which he said, I really must know. So, you know, what a nice guy. Thank you, Lou. Shaky Town is out now. Do pick up a copy and follow Tiger Van at Tiger Van Books on Twitter. And remember, October 4th, the Young Southpaw Infinite Shakespeare video will be dropping. So I'm going to play you out on that now. Thanks for listening, everybody. You know that whole idea that if you had an infinite amount of monkeys and infinite number of typewriters that given enough time, they would eventually write the complete works of Shakespeare? You think this was what was going on in Shakespeare's parents' minds when they were trying to decide whether or not to have children? They're like, well, we could bone. Or we can start amassing an infinite amount of monkeys. Because, like, first of all, the typewriter hadn't even been invented back then. I mean, it's a less common saying, but I guess it'd be the same thing if you had an infinite number of monkeys and an infinite amount of paper and jars of ink and feather pens that they used to write with back then. I mean, all infinite, of course. I mean, would Shakespeare's parents have considered inventing the typewriter to aid these monkeys along? I mean, this isn't your usual preamble to amorous activity. I don't know how many people it gets in the mood to make babies. 
I, I guess what I'm saying is that their decision to procreate and not attempt to amass an infinite amount of monkeys and typewriters, which they need to invent first, or trick the monkeys into inventing, their choice not to do that, whether out of laziness or sheer venality, greatly advanced theater and literature as we know it. I mean, people always credit Shakespeare with writing those plays, but I mean, his parents made him. I mean, maybe, there were, maybe the saying comes from there were what looked like an infinite amount of monkeys present. In the boudoir, you know? When they were going to do the deed. Maybe that was their thang, their particular kink. I mean, I can't say for sure. I don't think anybody came. There's no record of it. None of his plays deal with this. And unless it's like hidden in one. Maybe like, as you like it. Whoa, subtext, you know? I mean, of course, this proves that it might not be an either-or situation. I mean, is this like Schrodinger's orangutan? I mean, ugh, imagine opening up a box and it's just filled with an infinite amount of deceased monkeys. They've all bludgeoned each other to death using the complete leather-bound works of William Shakespeare. I mean, this would have to give mathematicians pause you know, before they go revealing any more secrets of famous playwrights' parents' private lives like that. A lot of peas in that sentence, I know. Hope it didn't make any of y'all have to go to the bathroom. Miss the big finale. Pause is in P-A-U-S-E. I am not suggesting that these very same theoretical math professors would then start turning into monkeys, beginning with their hands. The very hands they'd then be typing with. Who's to say these monkeys would even want to read Shakespeare, you know? I mean, think they might be more into pop bands. I mean, Last Train to Clarksville, Daydream Believer, those are tunes, man. Maybe they want to start writing scripts for David Jones, Mike Nesmith, and co. I mean, imagine how good those monkeys' TV shows could have been if the writer's room was packed with an infinite amount of monkeys who all thought they could do better than Mr. William Shakespeare? Mr. William Shakespeare, Mr. Bob William Shakespeare, we were all thinking it. And the show could have run for decades, well into the 80s and 90s. Start working the Wizard of Oz into it with those flying chips, you know? 
They just keep soaring higher and higher, trying to figure out where Icarus went wrong, you know, while they're reworking the Greek myths, putting all other TV writers to shame. And making tons of dough in the process. I mean, this would be gripping television. Maybe combine it with Gilligan's Island, you know? The flying monkeys start carrying members of the monkeys band, just like they were doing with Dorothy and Toto. And, you know, when they, when they arrive at the island, you know, keep them with the musician theme. You know, maybe instead of Bob Denver, it's John Denver. For Ginger, get Jerry Hallowell, Ginger Spice, you know? Professor Griff from Public Enemy, woo! Thurston Moore as Thurston Howe the Third. I mean, talk about experimental jet set. Now we're cooking. I mean, think of all television could have been if Shakespeare's parents had seriously considered the monkey alternative.